and welcome to PodCash, the Portable Professional Development Podcast from CASH. Thanks for joining us. This week we're joined by student learning disabilities nurse Christopher Turner, and Chris is in his third year, is that right Chris? My second year, right at the end of it. Well by the time this is edited and on the internet, you'll be a third year. Yes. How about that? So we've been talking a little bit before we've started recording about all of the amazing things that you've been learning and doing, not just within the nursing itself but also just you as a person and about yourself um can you tell us a little bit about why you decided that you wanted to become a nurse long long road round because um well, i'm 35 now so i was 33 when i decided that i wanted to do the course um and it was a case of i'd gone down a career path um and reached a point where I realised that it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore, it wasn't fitting with how I wanted to be, it was different from what I thought it would be once I got there. I was doing a lot of staff training but also a lot of admin work and not really dealing with frontline you know, customer service or people and I was really feeling like I needed a change where I was actually dealing with the public face to face and it was a case of thinking about what I was interested in, what I was good at and it was the sciencey side of things and I was interested in in healthcare in general and uh, looked at all the different courses and I actually applied for all of the different nursing strands because there's lots of different types of nursing and when I looked at the prospectus and the types of jobs that I would be doing with learning disability nursing, it was the best option of all of the different strands that I've heard of. So you said that learning disability nursing was the closest fit to who you are as a person and what you want to do. What is it within your past experience that that made you feel that way? It was because it was so holistic in in the range of things that you can do with it so the other strands of nursing that I applied for were adult nursing which was you know most people going into nursing going into going to adult or pediatric nursing and it's a very physical thing and they become specialists in an area for an example I spent time uh, on a ward dealing with children's burns uh, and the nurses on that ward are specifically trained to deal with that area. Um, or you've got your mental health nurses who are trained to deal with um, you know, depression, anxiety, all sorts of different mental health concerns. Learning disability nursing is different because it takes both of those fields like, and puts them together because people with learning disabilities have, are full people. Are full people <laughs> and have physical concerns, have mental health concerns. Uh, and then what the learning disability nurse does is we look at how each of those influences the other. We also look at how people's emotions and feelings come into play and deal with the person as a whole. And it was a good fit for me because in past careers I've worked in, in organisations that I've dealt with children right through to adults right through to, to elderly people and it's a cradle to grave service in learning disability nursing talking to people who've done it for a long time 
they've gone into the um, into the profession working with children as young as three, four, five, and who are now adults and and dealing with them into the thirties and forties. So it's a good career for that perspective. So. Mm. Tell us a little bit about you. So, um, in terms of your journey, um, obviously you are an adult learner. You have yes. had work experience in the past. Um, what's that been like? Um, was it something that you ever considered going back to university and doing something that way? Yes, because I think it was something that uh, I felt of a, a, as a downfall. I was at university studying a different degree when I was a teenager, and wasn't really applying myself because it wasn't really something that I wanted to do. I was just doing something that I was academically good at. It was an environmental management degree. And it was because I, I had a high mark in geography and I just, because all my friends were going to university, I thought, oh, well, I'll go as well. That, that's my experience as well. Um, and I think a lot of academic learners have that same thing where they go into something because it's enjoyable at school because they're good at it and they get sort of pigeonholed into a, well, you'll do well at this because you're good at it now, rather than them being given a, a full suite of options as to where their career might take yeah. them in the and, future. And there was, there was a link back to healthcare then though, because at A-levels I, I, I studied biology, sports studies, geography and business studies. And I was big into playing basketball and water polo and, uh, and swimming. And I wanted to go down the route of physiotherapy as a career. But my A-level biology teacher at the time discouraged me from applying for physiotherapy degrees because she said I wouldn't make the grades necessary to get on those courses. Now, fool me, believe that. So then I just settled and it just wasn't the right fit. So I left that because the part-time job that I was doing at the time in customer service at a music centre, um, I received the opportunity to get a promotion and actually the manager at the time asked us if we wanted to write our own job descriptions as supervisors for customer service. And I thought, oh well, actually this is a, a, a good fit for the time being. I wasn't really thinking long-term because I was 20 at the time and you live forever at 20. That, that's true. and and. What has your experience been like of applying and going back to university as an adult? It's been quite checkered along the way, um, partly because of my own sort of conceptions of what it would be like, but then I'm six foot six, bald with a beard. I don't look like what people would draw a nurse as. So it's not so much the university as opposed to when you go out on a placement because the course is a 50-50 split so you would do academic work in the university but then they send you out to hospitals and community placements where you would learn how to do it, like working on the job basically. And that's where the differences have been, where I've gone into a situation with a job as a, as a sort of a, a manager head on because that's what I was doing for the previous decade or most of a decade um, and having to basically say to myself no you're learning something new from scratch and just learning to enjoy learning again rather than having to be on the career ladder at the time. Yeah so is that more getting used to not being good at things or getting used to sort of 
exploring things a little bit more rather than being the authority. Yeah, I think it it's helped me with my own sort of inter- internal process of learning how how operations work and seeing how a ward, for example, is managed and and not just seeing that it's it's your nurses and your doctors looking after your patients, but seeing actually that it's run like a business really helps to understand what's going on in that sort of field of work. What I really found in, in the first year, certainly, was that not all people that are teaching you need to know about your previous experience and frankly don't want to know about your previous experience because in, in their mind they are teaching you and they want a, a clean slate as far as possible. So in a way, I've had to put my previous knowledge in the back of my mind and use it but use it in a very um, savvy sort of way. The knowledge that you've had, has that helped you to question some of the stuff that you've learned or help you to contextualise that in the real world? Yes, so for example, things like questioning how feedback is being given to me. At at times in in first year, when when you're paired with a mentor and you're in a high stress situation, for example, on a ward where there was a patient in hearing distance of feedback that I was receiving um, and the discussion was quite strained because of that situation. Now, because of my life experience, I could then take that away and turn that into quite a decent piece of academic work where I was talking about the correct way to give feedback and the correct way to um, to develop a person because I've been a trainer in the past so I can understand the process from the mentor side as well and we, we started out with a cohort of 25 and we're down to 15 and we've still got another year to go so I think it life experience gives you a robustness that you need to be a learned disability nurse that makes sense and do you think that that attrition in the course of that 25 down to 15 is it is it the case that people come into nursing with a different picture of what they think that is and that actually during that first year of of the course and the qualification they get a real picture of what it is and that that's not actually what they were interested in or yeah i think it's 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 two things it's it's what i previously sort of discussed about my experience first time around at university it's some people went into it because all the friends were going to university and typically it was because a family member had something to do with nursing and so they thought oh well I'll just do that. Um, the other side of it is that it it's all it's a very fluid environment nursing education. If you go back to like the 60s, 70s right the way through to now it's constantly going from one extreme to the other. There's schools of thought where it, for a time it's usually five year blocks they had a situation where they decide that all nurses need to be competent across all fields and have a generalised nursing education system and then five years later they say well actually people are so generalised we've got no specialists so then they've really pushed to being specialists and then the opposite thing happens, people are so segmented and pigeonholed that they don't know how to work with each other. 
and it's that constant fluctuation as I say over usually five years since when new programs come in that means that it's so different all the time so even if they've had a family member who's been trained as a nurse they listen to them tell their story about how it was for them in education to get there and it's nothing like it at all yeah and that 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 makes sense in terms of political cycles and everything that goes on um, and we see that across all of the specialisms that, that we have in the warden organization obviously early years education and in teaching in general obviously um what about the sort of paper side of going back to university the actual processes um how did you find navigating things like the student loan system or um actually finding out as an adult learner what was there for you student loan system was um quite a a, a tricky one for me uh, because i didn't know what the special provisions were in terms of doing a, a degree that would lead you into a career in at the nhs and there's actually special provisions there when I first started my environmental management degree, I took out a student loan then, and because I had to reset a year, that was two years worth of, of loan money. And you get, a, in, in general, you get a certain amount of money that you're allowed to apply for to go to university across different fields. And do you think that's just to stop people doing a year of a million different yes. courses and living their yes. life as a student? It, it does make sense. But because it was there was such a long gap between it, um, really just because life got into my head instead of everything else, I, I forgot that whole process. So when I applied for a student loan for this first year um, of, of the nursing degree, they said that they would fund my second and third years, but they could not fund my first year nursing degree, which is a bit of a frightening thing because I'd, at that point I'd applied for the course accepted a place in the course, resigned from my my full-time job and was ready to go and then said yeah. the and, and, wasn't there. And, and you're a gentleman in his 30s with a family, yes. so, so actually the financial yeah. side of it's At the time I had a one-year-old son and I'm married, uh, Will's three now, um, so it was quite a frightening prospect to do that. I thought that was going to be a, a real um, thing that stopped the whole process, but got a very supportive family and friends uh, and, and we got through the first year but at the end of the first year what we discovered was that I'd been put onto the wrong system in terms of student loan and in actual fact if you're going into a career that that path within the NHS that rule system about numbers of years of drawn down funding doesn't apply so I was always entitled to three years worth of funding for this particular degree. Yeah, and so that's that's part and parcel of them taking away the bursary, isn't it? Is yeah. that they changed the student loan system yes. to allow people to go into nursing who may have already had training and for a career. Yeah, so apart from that little blip, which was rectified and I was paid the year's worth of funding in full at the end of the year, so it was quite tricky September through to February, March, but then it was resolved um, and I've had no problems with them since then and it's, if anyone's thinking of going into this sort of career path, just make sure that you put on the right sort of block on the system 
in terms of student loan. Great, and I mean, did, were you able to access any support from the university that you go to in terms of navigating that system yeah. or getting any additional help? And in actual fact, that was the way that I discovered I was on the wrong uh, list, for want of a better word, but for the student loan company was because I went to the uh, university have a, a thing called a hardship fund set up, so I was applying for that for some help. And basically you have to supply information as to what your earnings are uh, and what the barriers are in terms of being able to earn any more and what your costs are. Uh, and I went into this hardship funding meeting to discuss if the university could supply with me any money. And the advisor there said, well, actually, before we do this, I've had a look over here and you're on the wrong system for student loan funding so we need to rectify that it's such a good system for those people that need it if everyone applied for it then and then took it, it it wouldn't be very fair so do you think the message there is to to ask for that help as early as possible rather than ask for the waiting? help ask for the advice no one going into university is expert on everything under the sun and there's some good advisors there that can help you great um what about UCAS? I mean, for, for an adult going back into to university education, it, it must be quite intimidating exploring that sort of application process and looking at how that would work. I've had, I've really, I've had very little dealing with UCAS because it, I knew that it was going, whatever I was going to do would be at that specific university because it was so close to home and I couldn't move around with my family situation. So in actual fact, if you have a, a focus on where you want to be, and I was fortunate that my local university is particularly good at that career path in nursing, I only applied to one university, but as it happened, I applied for three different degrees, and I took the learning disability nursing degree. So I didn't actually have that much input from you guys. Yeah, and I suppose you are quite fortunate that we do have um, a couple of really good universities for nursing in the northeast. In terms of the university that you're at, um, I know they do a lot of sort of cross-discipline stuff with other caring degrees. Um, how have you found collaborating with social workers and nurses from other specialisms? It was interesting because it, it was a case of getting the timing right. Uh, we do interprofessional learning every year. Uh, in the first year, I didn't find it. It was it was very good to, to get to know the other students and know what they were doing, but I was so caught up in trying to learn what I was supposed to be doing, because where they're supposed to be representing learned disability nurses. In the first year, you don't really know what that is. It's only at the end of second year that I've got any idea what the, what it is really and I think that was the case for everyone in all the different disciplines if, if you start working together too early it's more of a social thing which isn't to be put down uh, but it's not really professional learning at that point once you go on placement and you've worked with people who have jobs where I've been on placement I've worked with uh, other nurses I've worked with, occupational therapists, psychologists, surgeons, GPs, all sorts of different social workers. Uh, and then I could go back and relate to the people on the other degree paths. And that was useful because 
all of the healthcare decisions in terms of learned disability nursing especially are, tend to go through MDT which is multidisciplinary teams so people bring in all the expertise from the different areas coming together discussing the patient and deciding what the best practice for that patient is. And that in terms of healthcare in general um, is a relatively new process isn't it? Um, I know that um, added part of a social work degree um, and went to some of those interdisciplinary um, lectures and we heard all about all of those really famous cases where social work has fallen down. Where that fell down was that that interdisciplinary stuff didn't exist and that there was a, a sort of negative um, prejudice in amongst those different groups of yeah, professionals. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that that stuff in first year and the the sort of networking and socialisation aspect of that was helpful in breaking down some of those barriers? I, th- I think there's always going to be some level of partisan sort of an, a way of thinking because learned disability nurses are trained by learned disability nurses who say we're the best. Occupational therapists are trained by occupational therapists who say we're the best and, and every different area of healthcare are siloed in a way. And it's those educators' jobs to develop those people as professionals in terms of competence and confidence. So yes, they do really encourage their area of expertise as being quote unquote the best. But in actual fact, it's only when you learn to work with the other fields that you really get the best healthcare for your patients. When I come out of this this degree, I won't be qualified to do an awful lot of things, but it's my job to be able to access those specific skill sets and services for my patients. That makes sense. So we've talked a little bit about um, your journey as a student and becoming a student again from an administrative point of view and sorting out life point of view and a little bit about what learning disability nurses do. Um, What is it that you've enjoyed most? What is it that sort of kept you on the course where other people have disappeared? I think it's because I really understood what that patient group needs and being able to, to to tap into that world. So a lot of students I've noticed go into placements with the mindset of, right, this is what I need to achieve. How are you as a placement provider going to help me achieve that? And it's a very me, my education way of thinking, whereas I've gone into all of my placements with the mindset of this is a three-year job interview. This is me presenting myself over a long period of time because each placement is minimum of a month, if not longer. My longest placement next year will be five months. Uh, In total, you have to do 2,500 hours of training on placement before you can apply for a job to be a nurse in, a, in any field um, and I think it was a case of 
me understanding that because of my previous life experience, I guess, uh, being able to go in and say, right, the, f the first most important thing going into an office is just making sure that they say that you're going to put five pound in the in the um, kitty for the coffee, because you're then becoming part of the team, part of the group there, and then you're more likely to uh, receive training opportunities from the entire office rather than purely your mentor, and that's what you want. You don't want to learn from one person in a service provider. You want to learn from the whole team there and if you can integrate yourself into the team then you learn a great deal more and working with on the patient side of things I think especially with learned disability nursing what has put a lot of people off are the what you would call the challenging behaviors that a lot of our client group uh, display if you can understand that okay the definition of a learning disability is that you uh, either can't take on board new information or retain that new information and there's varying different levels from from mild to severe disability there uh, and if you understand that that means that your ability to communicate is impaired that means that your ability ability to you know ex express your emotions correctly which can lead to personality disorders um, there are genetic factors in play in terms of learned disability. So if you have Down syndrome, you'll have a learned disability, but you're also likely to have physical health issues as well. If you can understand that the challenging behaviours that all of these patients are displaying is actually a form of communication and every behaviour has a message behind it, and the challenging bit of challenge behavior is on us. So it's to, the, to that person, that's just behavior. It's not challenging, it's just their personality. And the challenge is to the healthcare provider or social care provider to be able to adapt and work with that. That's when you start to grow confidence. If you, if you can do that, you can do this job. I think that there's a lesson for everybody in sort of looking at understanding why someone is interacting with you the way that they are and that is across any walk of life. And vulnerable people in very vulnerable situations, you know, they need that person to, to trust and that's why it's valuable to have learned disability nurses in the community who people deal with throughout their lives. You know, I've met people who have been cared for by the parents very well all through the parents' lives, but then unfortunately the parents have passed away and the need, they're in a situation where they don't know who to trust. So developing that ability to, to garner trust in someone, but then making sure that you deliver on that trust is so important. Um, I mean, is that something that you think the Equestomer Service background has helped you with? Definitely. I think that working in customer service for well in actual fact for a long period of time in lots of different jobs so i've worked my first job was in mcdonald's uh, and at the same time as i worked in mcdonald's i was doing some work experience placements as a receptionist and a solicitors 
and then I've gone on to work in a customer service in, um, in a, a music venue. I've I've done bar work in pubs, um, and you have to be able to read people, read expressions, read body language, and that's a lot of you know most of your communication is body language. It's not it's not verbal, and with the patients that I'm encountering doing this course, it, and it's not just learned disability, it's you know people with autism, uh, it's, it's all, it all links in, you know, learned disabilities, autism. I would argue that personality disorder sits more comfortably in the brackets of learned disability than a mental health disorder, because personality disorder is essentially an inability to express your emotions effectively and it's a lifelong condition like learned disability whereas mental health issues can come and go uh, and I think all of that experience that I've had with real people with real people actually lets you see the patients as and I've been referring to them as patients but there are they are people and you and everyone's a mosaic and everyone's got lots of different things going on and I'm not so sure that having separate categories of learned disability and autism and personality disorder and all these different areas is, is helpful although what's likely to come in in the next few years is that they're going to start calling it uh, an intellectual disability to talk about the whole all of all of those categories and, and how do you feel about that because just at, that's the first time I've ever heard that and for me intellectual disability seems more judgmental than learning disability is, uh, yeah. is that uh, well it's 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 coming in from the US that's that's the US have, have made that language change already uh, I think that what we're looking for is some sort of way in language of being able to say that learned disabilities and autism sit very well together in terms of a healthcare and social care uh, service provision should be together and um, so they're looking for some way or some wording to put those two things together whereas they don't always fit very well there is a lot of overlap yeah. And there are a lot of, of patients that I work with that have autism or are on the spectrum of autism as well. But it's it's just a question of language and how you do that. And it's, yeah. it's likely that it will become intellectual disability, but I don't think it's the best language that we could have for it. Yeah, because I mean, language is quite important in terms of disability. Um, I know that, you know, I've got a physical health condition um, and best practice isn't always the right practice for every individual so um, again from the US um, person first language is a big deal in the US um, and is the accepted form whereas here in the UK and th th there's a bit of a split so there are there is a school of thought that it that, that you should refer to people as people first and their disability second so you'd have a person with a disability Whereas personally, um, and a lot of the people that I work with in um, my role as volunteer coordinator for the, the disability group that I work within, um, 
dislike that. Um, I am a disabled person. Um, and, and the reason for that for me is that I am not disabled by my health condition. So I am not a person who innately has a disability. We use the social model for disability in the UK. So for me, I am a disabled person because I am disabled by the environment rather than carrying that disability around with us. Um, do you think the same thing will sort of happen with this, where different groups of people will prefer different terminology? Yes, I do. Um, but I think I think what it should be the case of, I think it's a very personal journey, a very personal experience for people. Um, the difficulty with the, the, the group that I'll be working with is that a lot of my patients can't express what they would prefer to be referred to as. Um, so I think it's a case certainly of educating people to be flexible. But I don't think it should ever be legislated and become prescribed. rule prescribed. Yeah. Um, I don't think that would really work because that is always going to go against someone's point of view or yeah. someone's way of wanting to be referred to. So, obviously we've talked a little bit about all of the things that have, have, have gone really well um, and some of the challenge that you, challenges that you've faced from sort of a, an administrative point of view. What, is there anything that you've seen going into student nursing and, and going into placement that has shocked you or has been difficult to sort of come to terms with? Yes. Um, there are, and it's in, it's been in the news recently about, you know, in recent ab abuse cases where there's been long-term term residential stay in hosp hospitals set up for dealing with learned, people with learning disabilities, uh, where staff have physically, mentally, emotionally tortured people and it's got going back to Winterbourne view in, in the start of this decade um, where there was a BBC documentary there showing physical abuse there and it's recently just happened again uh, closer to where we are at the moment over in Bishop Auckland um, and that's hard to swallow because you see that and it's it's people because we're trained to see the person as a whole and see past the challenging behaviours, it's harder to swallow seeing that sort of abuse. And it also, it, it's upsetting on the, the perspective of, I know how many people in learned disability nursing and, and healthcare assistance and social work work so hard and put everything into it. and. It really taints the service that we provide. It, from a patient point of view, you know, I know there's patients that have experienced that abuse that are just terrified of the world now, and that's going to take an awful lot of really good positive care over decades to fix. So it is upsetting seeing that that happens, but that's that's not. Uh, something that the education system, while I'm in it, can solve the problem. It's it's when we're out in the service and 
becoming managers of wards and services ourselves that would actually be able to fix that problem. I mean, that, that, that's great and, and obviously for, for anyone who is actually invested in that sort of care it, 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 it will be really difficult and for the rest of us who just have a, 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 an aspect of humanity it's, it's quite hard to see the stuff that's been happening but um, you might be surprised to hear that I have some quite strong views on that. We don't hold care practitioners in as high esteem as we should so care workers are still the lowest paid members of society they work very long hours um, a lot of them with absolutely no training so you don't have to have a qualification to work in a care home and at the same time that investment from employers isn't there to support development of that person and there isn't a support with the emotional burden that goes with that either because they are viewed as workers and not as professionals and I think that in terms of society it's it's a long road sadly but I think that we need to value those professionals a lot more. That's very true um, but it, it goes right the way if you follow if you follow the money through that that's the issue and it's Yes, the people in the jobs need to be need to be respected, but part of that respect is ensuring that the recruitment process is correct and robust enough to recruit the people who are are best suited to the role, making sure that the training is provided in a way that protects them and ensures that they are able to give good service provision. It, it also educates them so that they understand what the service they are providing is all about and, and understands the patients that they are working with. But nothing in, in the certainly Winterbourne view or the, or the recent case of abuse that's been highlighted, nothing there was excusable in terms of uh, staff not being respected that was a case of poor management poor recruitment and really horrendous practices by a group of people there on the other hand all of the different placements that i've worked in there are some wonderful wonderful people working there and what the documentaries i think didn't highlight sufficiently was that it is very difficult and you do have very difficult patients sometimes that you're working with. The day after the most recent scandal hit the BBC headlines, I, w I was on placement and I went to visit a patient in a residential care facility who had started exhibiting behaviours of biting and it was biting on arms faces and necks to the point of breaking the skin and when I was looking at the pictures of those care workers that had been attacked in this way it looked like an animal attack it looked very very vicious very very violent and those people after having received treatment for those injuries were still at work they were still there still caring for that particular patient in a very, very professional manner because they got that the behaviour was telling them something was going on there and part of the reason why myself and my mentor and 
that patient social worker attended was to discuss with the care providers what the root cause was. And you look at everything, you look at, you know, is he feeling isolated from his family? Is he physically in pain? Is there something going on where there's a particular staff member or the staff members remind us of him of someone or something like that? So you'd look at all of that, but certainly the situation with, with nurse and assistants needs to be addressed, but I think it's a deeper issue there that I don't particularly agree with private contractors being given contracts to, to work with patients that are going through the NHS system. I would bring all those services back into the NHS uh, and, and streamline the money a bit more effectively that way. Great. Um, in terms of that sort of professional development and that support and people working within the care system, to be able to then support um, patients or service users or individuals who are accessing those services. Um, what do you think the current state of play is in terms of helping people to understand the importance of self-care and their own development? I think that there's a, a lot of work to be done there but it, it, it's, on a, it's on a trust by trust basis so the NHS isn't just one big homogenous body, there's local authorities and trusts and I've seen some really good practice in terms of looking after staff and making sure that self-care is a valuable thing to be considered. It's part of the reason why universities encourage reflection and when you go into a career as a nurse you still have to continue to reflect because you have to be reassessed every three years and part of that is providing a portfolio of reflection. So that encourages you to to think about yourself and think about how things affect you and, and you know there have been situations on placement that have affected me and changed I, I think changed my personality like over I, I think I'm a different person two-thirds of the way through this course and I'll be a different person again in a year's time as a result of, of, of... I mean, I can certainly attest that over the past two years I've seen you growing confidence as a person and you certainly speak with much more authority now um, when you have an opinion about something than you did before, um, maybe when you weren't quite as sure of your own strengths. Um, do you think that's been the education you've had or do you think that's the experiences you've had in those real settings or, or, or a combination? I think it's a combination, it's a combination of finding the right fit for what I'm good at, what I enjoy, receiving validation, receiving validation that what I'm doing is is you know correct. I, mean, I had a great bit of feedback from my, my previous mentor who told me that, and it was in a written form, so I have to hand this into the university, that I was refreshingly forthright. And I said, what does that mean? I talk too much. And she said, yes, but it's better than a student just sitting quietly for four weeks and saying nothing. In any case, you tend to speak up at the right time with good information that's relevant to what we're talking about at the time or relevant to the, to the patient involved. 
So I think having feedback like that helps to develop confidence as long as you know you've learned on the academic side and you've learned from the patient, you've learned from the mentors and you don't take that for granted. So we hear a lot in the media about the lack of men in early years and care roles. Do you think that it's a welcoming profession for men? It's it's changed over time, both in terms of the profession over time and my experience over time. So if you go back to the most famous nurse in Florence Nightingale, she wrote in a book that men couldn't be nurses because the hands were too big. And that was the perception there, was that we were physically unsuited to doing that. Do you think um, that's because nursing was more of a physical only job then? It was a it was a support for doctors and for yeah. the, the treatment rather than being a more holistic, caring and Yes, and it was a very physical role in a, in a situation where most men were going into the army and things like that so it was a different it was a different time but it was just you know when you read about the part of the course in first year is that you read about you know seminal works by nurses through history and it was funny to say that the original perception was that literally our hands were too big to be able yeah, to it wasn't about your ability provide. to care for no 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 it was it about was a physical it was about having hands that were too rough and and things like that but over time, you know, when the first learned disability and, and mental health hospitals came into into being, it was ma- they were mainly staffed by men. And recently in this region, most of the nursing assistant jobs uh, done very well, I'd, I'd, have been taken up by former minors and people of, of, of professions like that. So there's a lot of men working as nursing assistants in learned disability and mental health provision, um, but not so many going on to development as actual learned disability nurses. The, of our cohort, there are three of us left, three males left on the course. Um, so out of 15 left, it's, it's three males. Um, Going into placement, you know, the, it's it's looking more even that there are there are men in the in the workplace that you don't know who the patient's going to react well to. And is that something that you would challenge in terms of um, gender politics or patients not reacting well to a nurse purely because of their what's gender? the best for this patient who isn't able to take on new social ideas and isn't able to retain that sort of information because of the learned disability. What we look at is, is it, if a patient's behaviour is unusual, is it damaging in any way? And is that that if a behaviour's a, a, a patient, a patient's behaviour is unusual and maybe, maybe a little bit distressing or um, offensive um, to the nursing team or, or the, the, the staff team but wasn't actually damaging or a problem for the patient or the service user that that's something you wouldn't necessarily challenge if actually challenging that patient would be more damaging than the behaviour itself is that yeah, the approach? Yeah. So for example uh, I've met a patient who has certain requirements before he goes to bed so his 
routine is managed by the street lights coming on the street. And that's the way that he's been throughout his life. He's the same age as me. And he goes to bed when the street lights come on and he will stand at the window and watch the street lights. And talking to some professionals, they would want to break that habit before he goes into independent living away from his parents. But to me, why would you do that? What what issue is there to do with it? I, I can't see why it would be putting him in danger or, or causing problems or offence to anyone else. On the other side of it, some things that you might think are, are not damaging can be actually the thing that you need to change. There's a genetic disorder called Williams Syndrome, uh, which has certain markers and, and issues that come along with it. And this patient happened to only eat three Chicago town pizzas a day. That was their diet. Um, now, that may be nutritionally not, not very beneficial and you would try and encourage that person to, to expand the diet. But the issue there was that actually people with this specific syndrome can't break down calcium. Right, okay. So what was happening with this patient was that they were having an incredibly calcium-rich diet. Their genetic disorder meant that they couldn't break down that calcium and high calcium deposits in the blood or in the kidneys can lead to psychosis, which is what happened in this sort of case. So it's, it's a very case-by-case -case basis that you don't know what behaviours you need to change and what you need to let lie. And there's a specific area within learning disability because, called behavioural assessment, so we'll call it BATS, behavioural assessment team, which looks at these behaviours and, and what those behaviours are about and, and how to fix those situations. And sometimes it can be so simple, it's unbelievable. I, I met a, a young boy who he was non-verbal, had autism, he kept running away from school. And actually what we, you know, there were thoughts were, is there an issue? We went through the physical health things, went through, is he trying to get something? In actual fact, it's a case of seven-year-old boy who goes from home to school back to home he's never left alone ever he just wanted to go explore he wanted to be able to be in a field and run around safely for a bit and it can be just that that's what you yeah so looking at that enrichment of, yeah. as well not just yeah, the yeah. actual um clinical side of things but that actual life side and, and having that bit more of a, a whole view yeah. Do you think that that puts learning disability nursing in a category that is more aligned with social work than nursing in a lot of ways? Because a couple of weeks ago I spoke to um, a senior social work lecturer called Stephen Mordew, who is one of the authors who works with us at the moment. I mean, I know you're going to start writing some stuff for us, um, but Stephen's been with us for a while. And um, in the podcast that we recorded with Stephen, um, he talked about social work as being different to medical professionals like nurses um, because healthcare and medical professionals want to look after somebody's health sometimes at the expense of a person's 
liberty because health is their main priority so mm-hmm. where possible that that yeah. more holistic view will take place but health is the priority and that that is what sometimes puts those professionals in conflict with social workers who would prioritize life and choice over that health thing so your gentleman who had his chicago town pizzas um and his high calcium diet but without the ability to process calcium that would inevitably make him fairly ill stephen i believe would argue should be allowed to do that if he understands the consequences because that would be a social worker's role to facilitate that person's life decisions yes. being the most paramount and that is where that sort of contention between social workers and nurses often comes in from that professional point of view do you think learning disability nursing's in that grey area a little bit where you would look at both of those points of view and it's not only in the grey area I would say it is the grey area it's absolutely what you discuss the most really in in one way or another Um, learning disability nursing a lot of conversation is about capacity so capacity to understand a certain aspect of your life, capacity to manage a certain aspect of your life. But what we don't do is just say this person lacks capacity across the board. Yeah, we do have an amazing series of articles on Cash Alumni about the deprivation of liberty safeguards and the different ways that you need to consider yeah. those depending on how much somebody understands about that specific decision. Yeah. Um, is that something that in your experience practitioners at all levels have a very good understanding of and actually practice in mm. their day-to-day practice no. that patient choice is paramount no and that's in particular the reason why we have learned disability liaison nurses in hospital which is a really important role because that role is about going into the, the wards or the situation where we have a patient identified as having a learned disability is and working with the people on that ward to deliver the best holistic care. Because going back to talking about main, mainstream, if you like, nurses being trained in a specific area, so on a ward where they um, carry out endoscopies, there are nurses there that are really good at endoscopies, understand everything about that, can carry them out themselves, understand the treatments and processes there they treat the wound or the the condition what we need to be doing as learned disability nurses is saying well actually we're treating the person as a whole so it is important to develop good relationships with social workers you can see that in just in all of the different literatures and drives that the nhs are doing at the moment there's stomp which is is about stopping over medication of people with learned disabilities. We're trying to move away from that and looking at different ways of supporting patients that doesn't involve medication, so positive behavioural support is a big one, um, but also social prescribing, which I think is a really good idea, which is you would go to your, your GP and rather than getting a, a prescription for, let's say, just like an antidepressant um, and you've identified with the GP that part of your issue is social isolation the GP might give you the antidepressant for a short amount of time but then prescribe you 
a leisure centre pass or some sort of ticket to go somewhere and do something social with other people so an activity replaces the chemical intervention and there's evidence coming through that that actually really works very effectively um, do you think that's better where medication might be better for the people around a person who has a learning disability do you think social prescribing is better for the individual who is being I medicated think, I think for people I think for people around them often fall into the trap of, of thinking the medication is fixing the problem what the medication is doing is putting a lid on the problem fixing the symptoms rather than the actual cause yeah um, and what medication is good for is getting a person into a situation where they are physically and mentally able to start doing those social activities so I, I wouldn't say stop all medications yeah and that was then, there will be cases where long-term medication would, yeah, is the right thing yeah, for that abso- person absolutely but sometimes you need that medication to get you into a mindset or physical situation where you can actually access those social activities and then titrate and move back away from the medication and keep that social action there because the medication's done its job at that point. Chris, this is really interesting and um, we're probably going to continue this conversation but it would be great to have you back for a future episode. Um, I'd love to encourage everyone to um, follow you on social media um, and stay up to date with what's going on um, with your learning and nursing practice Um, and I love that they can find you on Twitter as at Turner Nurse and we'll shortly be able to read the articles that you're going to start writing for Cash Alumni. Um, Thank you so much for your time today and it'll be amazing to have you back for a future episode and talk more about the stuff that you've been doing maybe next year when you're out and about and working and no longer a student and thanks so much for your time thanks for coming um, and we'll speak to you again soon and thanks to you at home or on the go for joining us don't forget if you've got some best practice or you'd like to share with us um, something great um, you can get in touch with us at alumni at cash.org.uk that's alumni a-l-u-m-n-i at cash c-a-c-h-e for echo dot org dot uk and would love to speak to you you can find us at the cash alumni website at www.cashalumni.org.uk or through the main cash website for information about qualifications and other cpd at www.cachev.org.uk thanks very much and until next time take care